Our second reading is from the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he, he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The word of the Lord. It was three years ago that Christ Church Vienna started. November 6, 2011, we were just across the way over here at Louise Archer Elementary School, not too far away. Um, on that day, we sang Come Thou Fount, How Great Thou Art, Amazing Grace, songs that we're singing today. And on that day, after the church service in the cafetorium at Louise Archer, we had finger food and church street pizza. As I look back on three years, I am very grateful. That's what keeps coming back to me. I'm very grateful. I'm grateful for the people, for the stories, for what God has done. I'm grateful for the babies who have been born and for even how we've walked through suffering and sin together, how there have been places of forgiveness and healing, how people have grown or come to faith over the past three years. I'm grateful for what God has done. I'm not grateful that we just have a church. I'm grateful for people and for what God has done. Because ultimately, we didn't start off to start a church service on a Sunday morning three years ago. We started off with a vision, a purpose, a direction. We wanted to be a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. The idea was if we came together with purpose and intention, then maybe we could grow in our knowledge and love of God and maybe even make an impact on the community around us. And so we're still doing that today. Because that's what God called us to. If you had asked me years ago, when I actually went to this high school, if I would come back to start a church in my hometown, I would have said, no way. I wanted to get as far away from Vienna as possible. But several years ago, in fact, years before we started this church, I couldn't get it out of my head, this idea of starting a new church, a new community in the town I grew up in. And so, about seven years ago, my wife and kids and I, we moved back to Vienna. And we didn't just move back, we entered the community, or at least we tried to. 
I was coaching T-ball. We got to know our neighbors. I was shopping in the shops, trying to get rooted into the community. And one of the exercises that I did in the year before starting Christ Church Vienna was what was called a context walk. So I walked around the town of Vienna and tried to take notes. What was I seeing? What did we have too many of? What do we have not enough of? Yeah, mattress shops, banks. I, I, I wanted to notice what was good that was going on that could be celebrated. Things that were in line with God's purposes for a community. And what was disjointed from God's purposes? Where were things out of whack or sick in our community? What were the idols of our town and the people of our town? And what were the ways in which we were walking pretty close to God without even knowing it. And ultimately, to try to capture a vision of what more could this community be? Or another way to put it is, when Christ returns, how will this community look different than it does right now? You see, understanding location is integral to a church, and especially starting a new church. But it should also be integral for every single Christian. We're starting in on a four-week mini-series today called Place Matters. How can we be for, not just in, the places God has us? And so we're going to be looking at several different passages throughout the Bible and try to understand why location, place, where you are right now today and where we are as a church matters. Today, we're looking at Genesis. We're starting where it begins in the story of creation and God's purposes for Adam and Eve and therefore for us by placing him in the garden and calling them to something unique. The very creation account in Genesis gives meaning to place. Think about this. God creates a physical space. He doesn't just create the divine realm, the spiritual realm, the realm we can't see. God creates location and space. And he gives order to it and sets boundaries to it so that there is water and there is land. And he places inhabitants in the land or in the water or in the air. And he even sets Adam and Eve in a particular place, a physical place. Place matters from the very fact that God creates. And throughout history, what you find is God acts in particular places. He acts through individuals walking around in historical places, doing the things they do as God is working through them. And so whether it is Abraham or David or Jesus, God acts in place. And it starts with Adam. In Genesis 2.15, we read this. The Lord God took the man and put him. He set him somewhere. He gave him a place. He put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So our first indication that place matters is that God places the man, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And it makes me ask this question, what makes a garden? So I'm not a gardener. We should probably have Corky up here to talk about this. But some basics on a garden are this. There is intentionality in a garden. 
There is purposefulness. You order a garden or reorder to make a garden. It involves plucking things you don't want there, removing things that shouldn't be there in order to cultivate the things you do want there. There's order, arrangement, removal, purposefulness and intention. When you make a garden, you're taking the land, the creation, and giving it direction. And the direction of the garden leads to fruitfulness Like if you want to have fruit trees flourishing, a garden for vegetables, you're intentional about what you plant where. Or it can be for beauty. If you've ever seen an English garden or or walked behind the pavilions at, at University of Virginia's landscaped backgrounds, you can see that there's beauty and purpose and fruitfulness, intention and meaning in a garden. And that's what Eden was. Eden was a place for fruitfulness and flourishing, for beauty and for pleasure, for intimacy, a place where they could dwell. Throughout the Bible, you find that the wilderness is not an inhabitable place, and the garden is the ideal habitable place. Gardens involve purposeful ordering or reordering. And you see this again, just kind of building on this metaphor, in an apple orchard. So in an apple orchard, what you find is that you don't just take some seed and throw it out like in that cartoon version of Johnny Appleseed. You actually intentionally plant the apple trees in rows. And you put them in bunches, blocks, or rows so that there's alternating types of apple tree. Why? So they cross-pollinate. Because apples thrive best when they're cross-pollinating. And so there's intentionality in the orchard in order to create the most fruitful most productive apple trees you can possibly get. There's order to the garden. We do this when we order or clean our desks. Many people cannot operate with their school work, their home work, the work that they do in their office without order. I'm one of those who can with a little bit of chaos. But I find that when you do create order, it, it makes it easier to be productive. And so whether it's the kitchen counter or your cubicle at work, taking chaos and putting order to it helps us to be more productive. We're made to operate in gardens, not in wilderness. We see this even in some of the cultural artifacts all around us. Think about the work of gardening that takes place in in something that's very simple but also remarkable. Let's say I have a few products, and the products are these. A few tubes of color, one of red, one of blue, one of black. And then I have a few sticks with bristles on the end of them. And then I have a couple of sheets or, or, or pieces of cloth. What I have is products. Gardening, fulfilling God's purposes for us, is taking these products and rearranging them. And so a particularly creative person might take the tube of color and squeeze some out and get it on that bristly stick and then start rubbing it around on the piece of cloth and make a painting. And all of a sudden, they have rearranged these products into beauty. And whether it is Picasso or Rembrandt or your three-year-old coming home from preschool... It's a piece of art, a piece of beauty, something with meaning and purpose behind it. 
something that tells a story and gives us direction simply because these products have been reordered. Sometimes it's the very simple way of reordering that makes the biggest impact long-term. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, The Tipping Point, asks this question. Why in New York City did the crime rate drop precipitously in the early 1990s? You see, through the 70s and through the 80s, crime was horrendous in New York City. There's the famous story of the subway vigilante trying to take law into his own hands in 1984. By 1990, crime was at its highest point in New York City. But then it began to precipitously decline much faster than the national average. And a lot of factors played into that. But Gladwell concentrates on one particular area, the cleaning up of the New York subways. And here's what he says. He says, it looks like it boils down to the broken window theory. What's the broken window theory? Some of you may have heard of this. It was argued, it was the brainchild of criminologists James Q. Wilson and George Kelling. This is what they argued. They argued that crime is the inevitable result of disorder. If a window is broken and left unrepaired, people walking by will conclude that no one cares and no one is in charge and soon more windows will be broken. And the sense of anarchy will spread from the building to the street on which it faces, sending a signal that anything goes. Kelling was hired by the New York subway system in a whole reordering of the subways. And what he said was, you want to stop crime, all sorts of crime that was happening on the subway so that they were unsafe to travel on? Wash the graffiti off. And so from 1984 to 1990, they went on a religious effort to clean every subway car one by one methodically, fighting back the vandalism that was put on the subways. And slowly but surely, a sense of order returned to the subway system. The next thing they hit on was fare jumpers, people that would just hop the little gates in order not to pay $1.25. They started arresting them, lining them up in daisy chains so that everyone walking by would see them lined up waiting for the paddy wagon to take them away, simply because they hopped the $1.25 railing. And these simple little bits of reordering began to change people's thinking about the subway system. There now seemed to be some order and sense and purpose to it. It was going somewhere, literally. And people began to use it again and feel safe living in Brooklyn and traveling into Manhattan to work. And the result of it was that 10 years, 15 years later, crime dropped majorly and prosperity was brought to that city in a way that they hadn't seen for decades. Simply because they cleaned a subway system, fixed a broken window, stopped the simple ways of things breaking down, Put a little order to that little piece of garden. And that's God's intention for every place. God's intention for every home, every office, every street, every school, every town, is that they would be places of order and purposefulness, fruitfulness, peace, intimacy, meaning. Places where you can experience God. And so the question I want us to be asking is where has God placed you? Where has God placed us? And how are we being called to work and cultivate the garden that is under our feet today? 
In Genesis 1.28, which comes before this passage in Genesis 2 that we were reading, God gives the cultural mandate, the creation mandate, the declaration for all of humanity. It says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. This, of course, has been misused at times, but if you take these words subdue and dominion and place them in the context in which it's being said, the idea of doing this in our lives is actually to know that you and I are responsible. God holds us accountable before him for how we deal with the creation, one another, and the places in which we've been placed. That word dominion and subdue actually relates to the word for shepherding. A shepherd is a caretaker of the sheep. He protects them, provides for them, directs them for their good. He doesn't exploit them for his own good. Dominion is rule with purpose, selfless purpose. And it involves cultivating, subduing the wilderness, bringing order out of the chaos in order to create a place for flourishing. And I think, I think this directly relates to the verse before it, which says that we're made in the image of God. In verse 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to reflect God? I think a huge part of it is carrying on God's purposes in creation that we are to be his agents in the world. Wherever God has placed us, we are God's representatives to bring order and peace and joy, to be the light of God to the darkness around us. We carry on his purposes as we cultivate the garden under our feet. God has called us to participate with him in his work of creation. And he's called us to be caretakers of the corner of the garden that we walk in today. And that's why place matters. You see, place matters because we are physical, local image bearers of God. Think about how this plays out. Place is where we go about fulfilling God's purposes for all of creation. Wherever you are, the schools that you go to, the street you live on, the town that you're in, your place of work, where you commute, where you shop, these are the places God wants us to be his representatives. Pushing back the darkness, cultivating the wilderness, bringing the light of God there. Place is also where relationships happen. Over the past two months, we were talking about being the church as an extended family. In order to cultivate deep and intimate relations, you have to actually be proximate to people. They need to be in your life and you in theirs. Place matters for relationship. And place matters for how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ spreads. You know, the good news of what God has done in Christ was not just kind of some divine fiat thrown out there. God's method of changing the world was person by person by person local people like Peter and James and Paul and now us who carry on the good news of Jesus Christ so that the next person, the next generation might come to know and worship God. Place matters. 
because place is where and how God acts. And we see this no more, nowhere more clearly than at Christmas when God says, I want to do something that changes everything. And he takes up locality, place. Now, the challenge for us is that our current culture tends to push against kind of being local and being place-centered. And part of that is because we're transient. We've talked about that here. Over the past four or five decades, we've become a culture that never lives in the same place more than three or four years. And so we go to school somewhere and we settle somewhere and then we move somewhere. And over the course of decades, we live in eight, ten different states, multiple countries. We're very transient people. And few of us identify with a particular place. And rarely do we actually identify with the place we're currently occupying. And on top of that, on top of being transient, we're also natural consumers. Now, a consumer takes advantage of what's in front of him or before him. And here's how you can, you can see this play out. If you've ever rented a car, it's, it's likely that you've driven that car a little harder than you would drive your own. If I had a stick shift, I would be careful in shifting, unless it was a rental car. If any of you have ever been in a rental home, like at a beach house, you know that you're a little less careful. And if any one of you owns one of those sorts of places, you know what it's like. See, in your own home, if you own something, like let's say a stereo, you know that you know, the dial goes from zero to 10 and you want to turn it up to about seven or eight because you don't want to blow the speakers. But if it's a rental home at the beach, you'll turn it up to 11 because, I mean, you know, who cares if the speakers blow? It's not yours. Now, I know that's sort of a careless mentality, but the less we feel attached to something as ours, the more likely we are to be consumers using it, not caretakers of it. Think of the difference between approaching a restaurant and your own kitchen. You go to a restaurant because of your needs being met. You're paying, therefore you have rights, and it's your satisfaction you're after. But in your kitchen, you work, you clean, you produce. You enter that space trying to be responsible for it. And so in many ways, the mindset that I want us to be able to cultivate is that of a caretaker and not of a consumer. We're natural caretakers of the things that belong to us. My clothes, my yard, my car. And what I want us to do is to think about that same mentality with every place we go. That wherever we go, the relationships we have at work, at school, the offices we we enter, the, the, the metro system that we're in, the streets we walk, the shops we go into, to think about all of those places as the places God has put me. And I'm a caretaker in them. That's what it is to be for, not just in the places God has put us. There's good going on in this area. There's actually a movement in America over the past decade that goes back to place, more so now than in quite some time. There's a, you can read articles and see kind of emblems of this happening, that there's a trend towards being rooted You know, one of the ways you see the desire for rootedness in our culture is that new architecture, if you look at new houses built in this community, you know what you find is they actually reflect and are emblems of older architecture. They all have front porches. 
in order to reflect an era when everyone sat on their front porch. Even if nobody actually uses it, the intention is to think this building was here for 100 years, even if it was only there for two years. There's a desire for rootedness. You even see this in church culture. In the under 30 crowd that are going to church, there is not a knee-jerk reaction against tradition, against liturgical prayers, against things that are 100 or 500 or 1,000 years old because the under 30s recognize that there is actually a need for something that is longer, that's been around longer than their Twitter account, something that, that, that has been there for years. And if it's a prayer that goes back 500 years, thank you. There's a growing movement to identify with the places that we are. You see this in the shop local movement, the farm to table movement, the idea that you can't go into a grocery store without knowing how many miles away your apple was picked. This idea that we want things local is part of this desire for place and rootedness and meaning in place. One urbanologist said that the new question that people are asking when they meet somebody is where do you live? The 20th century question was what do you do? The 21st century question is, where do you live? Because place matters more and more. This local trend is showing up in church as well. There's more of a move to the local parish model. Trinity Grace Church in New York City is one of the most cutting-edge churches in America. And they, instead of becoming one large church, have split into multiple, multiple little parishes. So that if you're in one part of Queens, you go to this parish. If you're in another part, you go to this one. Because they want people to identify their church with their place. You see this at National Community Church downtown D.C., where they have set up different campuses so that people who live on Capitol Hill can go to one campus and people who live in Georgetown can go to another and have identification with their local place. This is a good thing that's happening in America, this movement back to the local and the place. Because I think we're made for it. We're made to identify with the places God puts us. But here's a question. Is the trend in our culture back towards locality and place really just the pendulum swinging from the transience of the past 50 years? Or is there something more in it? Is there something deeper? I think there is. I think that the desire for place that's trending in our culture, the desire to be known locally, is actually a desire for home. And I don't mean the home you were born in. I mean your true and eternal home. We were created to dwell with God in the garden. But the story that goes on in Genesis 3, which we didn't read, is that of the fall of Adam and Eve breaking their covenant relationship with God. They sin. And as a result of sin, they're separated from God and expelled from their garden home so that every one of us has this longing to return to a place we can't get to on our own. They ate the tree of knowledge, and so they were barred from the tree of life. But the good news of Jesus Christ is what? Is that he came to reconcile us to God. He came, and in his death on the tree, on a tree outside of the city of Jerusalem, he was expelled and separated from God's presence. He died the death we all deserve to die so that we might be brought back into relationship with God. Our hope 
for those whose faith is in Christ. Our hope is in the new creation to come. If you read on in Revelation 21 and 22, which we read a little bit of today, it's the picture of the new creation, of everything being restored as it's meant to be. And in the middle of this whole creation, this new creation is the tree of life. We have access to it again. That's what we're longing for. What we're longing for when we look to shop locally, when we look for traditional-looking houses, beat-up furniture that looks like it's 100 years old, even though it was made at Pottery Barn, what we're looking for is a place that lasts. We're looking for the place we were made for. We're looking for Eden. We're looking to be dwelling with God. We're looking for heaven. It's very natural that after 50 years of wandering in America, we say, I want something local and something that lasts. So let's build on that. Let's take advantage of that. Let's tell that story in a way that can help people to see that what they're really longing for is God. What they're really longing for is the home that God offers in Jesus Christ. Place matters. It's why in our vision and value statement, we talk about not being just in Vienna, consumers, but for Vienna. That we are the kind of people that seek the welfare of the town we inhabit, of the neighborhood we inhabit, of the office we go to, of the school that we walk in. We seek its welfare and pursue God's purposes for our community. So how do we do this? How do we make place matter? We need to enter. We need to enter our places. That means visit the same places frequently. Become an intentional and relational customer if you're going to go shop places. Get to know the people in places where you dwell. Know your neighbors. Know the people in your school. Know the people where you shop. Maybe even enter deeper and consider laying down roots in a place, whether it's here or somewhere else. Deepen your roots enter. Second thing we need to do is we need to be more aware. We need to identify. We need to identify the places we go. It's one of the benefits of walking instead of driving whenever you can, because as you walk, you start noticing things. You notice the way somebody else did their front yard. You notice the buildings that you hadn't seen behind the building that's always on the street when you're driving past quickly. Identify the places where you and I live. Note what's good and should be celebrated. And observe the idols and sickness in your community. Become an identifier of the places you dwell. And third, intercede for your places. Pray for them. Pray for your town, your school, your government, your teachers, your employer, the businesses in your community. This upcoming Saturday, we're doing the first of what I hope to be an annual exercise in praying for our community, the Envision Vienna Prayer Walk. It'll be this upcoming Saturday, 9 to 11. We're going to start at Vienna Elementary School and walk around the community praying for our government, praying for our law enforcement, praying for our schools, praying for the homes and all that goes on inside of them. Pray for your places that God has placed you in. Fourth, cultivate your places. Adam and Eve were put in the garden to tend it, to keep it, to garden it. Make something better. 
build something, bring order into your neighborhood, onto your street, into your town. This is what we're called to do. Initiate with a neighbor. Start something that becomes a recurring thing with a community around you. Find ways to beautify, to create flourishing. In order to do all this, we need to finally ask. We need to ask questions. What more could this community be? What would this place look like when Christ returns? How can we get closer to that picture? Ask questions like, where are the places of darkness in your community? You know, if the statistics bear out, one in four homes are places of violence, even here in Vienna. There are people in our community who are lonely and desperately in need of family. As Rod has identified, there are a number of schools in our community who have scores of kids who go home hungry on the weekends. And there's a whole sub-community of students who drop out before graduating. There is brokenness and darkness all around us. You just need to peel back a little further, push beyond the wall of the garden. Listen, many people move to Vienna for its hometown feel. Schools, houses, sports, a walkable downtown. They even close Maple Avenue for this parade every year. It's the third best town in America. But it's not heaven. And that's what we're really longing for. And until then, we are meant to push back the wilderness. You know, the original intention of Eden was this. Picture this for a minute with me, if you would. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, and they are told to be fruitful and multiply and to tend the garden and to keep it, right? So here's what they're called to do. They're called to have children who have children who have children. Well, eventually they're going to overpopulate the Garden of Eden. So what were they supposed to do? Were they supposed to just kind of jump over the wall and enter the wilderness? No. Do you know what they were called to do? The very mandate that God gives them, that he gives every one of us, was that they were supposed to fill and multiply, but also to push the Garden of Eden wider so that they would go outside of the garden to the next level of wilderness and turn that into the garden. The intention was not that they would eat of the tree of knowledge, but the tree of life, and that over the course of time, the entire earth would become the Garden of Paradise. They were intended to cultivate the entire land so that the whole thing was a place of flourishing and fruitfulness and peace and beauty and intimacy with one another and with God. We need Christ to return. But until that day, we are called to push back the wilderness all around us, to see and cultivate the places God has put under our feet, to take hold of that corner of the garden that God has given us this day as individuals and as a community and tend the garden. Let's pray. Lord of all creation, you have put us in this place at this time for your purposes. Guide us. Help us to see the thorns and briars and weeds all around us. 
Help us to find simple ways to bring beauty, humanity, flourishing to the people and places that we have been put. And may we do so as a church in the years to come. In Christ's name, amen. stars of night thy people's everlasting light O Christ redeemer of our soul we pray